But we're going to be in Psalm 12, looking at one psalm after another. We've made it all the way to here. And it seems like every psalm, every week, David is a total drag. I mean, everything seems to be going wrong in his life. Enemies are prevailing. He is on the run. David, it seems, can't get anything to go right for him. And that theme's just going to continue in Psalm 12. Our summer of darkness, our summer of depression, our summer of hope in the promises of God. That's what we'll see in Psalm 12. And as we dive in, I want you to keep one big idea in mind. This is the big idea of the text. It's my sermon in a sentence, so to speak. That we persevere in an untrue world because we know that God's word is true. We persevere in an untrue world because we know that God's word is true. We don't need Snopes fact-checking to know that we live in a false world. If you've been alive long enough, and if you have voted enough, then you have seen politicians come and go and make promises and break promises. Many of you have grown up in homes that, because of sin, have been broken. And you've had dads or moms who have made promises and have broken promises. Some of you children here, you've experienced the same thing. Or in friendships, perhaps, that we live in a world that is, for all intents and purposes, a false world. It is full of flattery. It's full of deception. It's full of double-mindedness that says one thing and yet means another. Where words are viewed almost purely pragmatically. That it really doesn't matter whether I tell the truth or a lie, as long as the intended purposes and ends are achieved, that's the most important thing? Well, that is what David is facing in Psalm 12. His world, though much more ancient than our own, at its heart doesn't really look much different than our world. It doesn't look much different than our 24-hour news cycles. It doesn't look much different than Fox News and CNN and the BBC. And so there's going to be at least two things that we're going to see in this text that flow out of this big idea, that big idea that we persevere in an untrue world because we know that God's word is true. And these two big ideas are this. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to see, don't trust the words of the wicked. Don't trust the words of the wicked. And then we're going to see a second point, beginning in verse 5, going all the way to the end, and that is, trust the word of the Lord. Trust the word of the Lord. Those are going to be our two points this morning as we walk through the psalm together. So, brothers and sisters, friends, hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Oh, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. It is, as it testifies of itself, pure words. It is true. 
May the Lord write its truths on our hearts so that by His grace we would walk in them to His glory. Let's consider this first point here. We're chasing this big idea that we persevere in an untrue world because we know that God's Word is true. And in verses 1 through 4, David is looking around at his circumstances. And it leads us to conclude this first point, that is, don't trust the words of the wicked. Notice in verse 1, David's prayer. It says, save, O Lord. David has run out of vocabulary for his prayer. He's just praying a short prayer. It seems he doesn't even know what to pray anymore. All he can say to God is one word, save. That's all he's got. And the reason in the end of verse 1 all the way through verse 4 is because of the circumstances in which he finds himself. And here we see two problems. At the end of verse 1, we see the first problem, and that is the absence of godly men. The absence of godly men. He says, for the godly one is gone. The faithful had vanished from, the, from among the children of men. That word faithful that you see there in verse 1, it, re- it doesn't refer to one who has faith in God specifically. It refers to faithful living, the kind of faithful life that seeks to please God by obeying his laws. And so David is looking around and going, nobody loves God. Nobody is seeking to please him and obey him. Injustice is abounding. And it seems I'm the last one standing. Friends, if you walk with God long enough, you will eventually experience the loneliness of obeying God. You will eventually experience... What it's like to feel as if you're the only one standing and desiring to obey Him. For some of you, you feel this way every time you go home at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And you consider the ways that your family speaks and the way that your family acts. You see the way that sinful and selfish decisions have ravaged families and broken up marriages And it seems to you, as perhaps the only believer in your family, that you're a lot like David here. That you look around and you go, where are the godly men? That you look around and it's as if the faithful had vanished. Or perhaps you feel this way when you stroll into work on Monday mornings. Perhaps you feel this way on the college campuses. As you look around in your classrooms. Or perhaps if you consider those with whom you went to college and have long since stopped following the Lord. Or perhaps you feel that way when you consider certain moral decisions that that churches as a whole and denominations as a whole are making as they capitulate to the culture. And it can feel sometimes as if if our church or even just me, as, as if I'm the only one. Has everyone abandoned God and His law? Brothers and sisters... If you walk with God long enough, you will eventually experience the loneliness of obeying God. And when you do, not if you do, but when you do, remember that Christ was acquainted with the same kind of grief. That he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces... We, we see in the Gospels at the end of Christ's life that all of his friends had abandoned him. The crowd that once adored him now shouted for his death. And even on the cross as he bore the entire weight of sin, it was as if his father himself had turned his back. He was all alone. And this is yet one more thing that makes him a sympathetic high priest. That even as his enemies grew, and even as all of his friends jumped ship, Jesus continued to entrust himself to the will of his Father. So when you find yourself in a place where the godly are gone and the faithful have vanished, remember Christ, then trust and obey God. Because brothers and sisters, the safest place in the world 
is at the center of God's will, even if it costs you everything. The safest place in the world is not in the acceptance of the world. The safest place in the world, as we see embodied in the life of Christ, is at the center of God's will, trusting Him and His promises, obeying Him according to His word, even if that obedience costs us everything. Jesus said that I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That allegiance to me and to my gospel is going to divide mothers from fathers. It's going to divide children from parents. And this will be, for many of us, the test as to whether we are worthy to be his disciples. The safest place in the world is at the center of God's will, even if it costs you everything. So that's problem number one, that all the godly have vanished. Problem number two, as we see in verses two through four, is the spread of wicked words. In verse two, we see the severity of the problem. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. Lying, he says, flattering, double-hearted deception. And notice, these aren't isolated incidents. This isn't just pockets of deception here and there. It is, as he says at the beginning of verse 2, everyone. And everyone is doing it to everyone. That is their neighbor. And so David sees that this is a systemic problem. He sees an outbreak of lying and deceiving. It's become an epidemic like spiritual Ebola. Everyone is infected around him. And it seems he's the only one in a hazmat suit. Well, in verses 3 and 4, we've seen in verse 2 the severity of the problem. In verses 3 and 4, he gets to the heart of the problem. He says, oh, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Ugh, that seems harsh, doesn't it? David's speaking in synecdoche. That is that he's not saying literally cutting off tongues. What he's saying is, that tongue is representative of the whole person, that God would stop them, thwart them, that God would bring justice where there is injustice, truth where there is lies. And in verse 4, he's talking specifically of those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? These deceivers boast in the triumph of their tongues. They deny any higher standard or accountability. And so David has harsh words in verse 3 because he's seen the damage that deceivers can cause with their words. He's seen the way that it topples families and the way that it undermines authority and the way that even in his own life with his son Absalom and in his relationship with Saul prior to that, the way that it can disintegrate governments. And so David speaks harshly because this is a harsh reality. That he is pleading for God to intervene, even violently so, so that no more violence can be caused. Because he knows the damage that deceivers can cause with their words. Karl Marx said, give me 26 soldiers and I will conquer the world. The 26 soldiers that he was referring to were the 26 letters of the alphabet. He knew that an army of words was more powerful than an army of men. That's why the final words of his communist manifesto are a powerful slogan. Working men of all countries unite. These six words have mobilized and motivated millions of people. And they motivate and they mobilize people still today. But it's interesting that in a demonstration in Moscow on the 72nd anniversary of communism in Russia, people carried signs that said, quote, workers of the world, we're sorry. And, quote, 72 years of leading nowhere. Boastful words will succeed for a season, but ultimately they will fail. Oh, that our politicians would keep this in mind. Boastful words may succeed for a season, but ultimately they will fail. This truth was made a 
abundantly clear in the life of the French atheist Voltaire. Voltaire made similar claims as the liars did in verse 4. He once said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. He said, my single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. I'm going to bring it all down. He wrote elsewhere that in 50 years, no one would remember Christianity. But it's interesting that in the year that he wrote that, the British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a single Bible manuscript, while one of Voltaire's books was selling in the London bookstalls for eight cents. Fifty years after his boast, Voltaire's house, Voltaire now being dead, Voltaire's house became the headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society. And that was being used to distribute Bibles all throughout Europe. God cuts off flattering lips. He cuts off the tongues which make great boasts. That he will humble those who would seek to exalt themselves in this life and when his son Jesus comes again. It's easy to look at Karl Marx to look at Voltaire and others, to point a big self-righteous finger as if we're standing on the Temple Mount and go, thank God I am not like those men. But God's law says, commands us, you shall not lie. And while we may not with deceitful words mobilize and motivate uh, millions. And we may not, with deceitful words, seek to undermine the very gospel of Jesus Christ, at least not in the manner that Voltaire does. Yet a quick glance at our Facebook feeds and our Instagram feeds would suggest that we're not being entirely honest with our lives. That all of us have a filtered version of the life that we want to present. That we want everybody to think that our walks with God are something other than what they are. So we, we post certain articles about, about God and Christianity and our favorite Bible verses when we haven't read our Bibles in months. We post certain things about our marriages and our spouses, about how great we think our spouse is and how great we think our, our kids are and how, how grateful we are to have such wonderful kids when we've spent most of the week ungrateful for our spouse. Or perhaps angry with our kids. That those cute anniversary well wishes that we leave to our spouses or birthday wishes to our friends sometimes can betray a falsity in our own lives. We have to beware of Instagram filtered lives. God said, You shall not lie. And while it may be easy to look at Karl Marx, and it may be easy to look at Voltaire and to think that we're doing pretty well, when we measure ourselves against the glory of God revealed in the law of God, we find that we are altogether wicked and unrighteous. This is what Laura was saying in our prayer of confession. That when Paul in Romans 3 addresses the truth that there are none righteous, no, not one. One of the things that he applies to all people everywhere is that we all speak to some level with deceitful and lying lips. Whether it's in proud, boastful, arrogant lies or whether it may be in little respectable half-truths that help us to exalt ourselves over others to make ourselves look better than what we are or to exalt ourselves over others. God's word says that for every single person who has broken God's law in this way, and that counts everybody here, it says that we are all cursed by the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the law and do all that is written in it. Thou shalt not lie. How you doing? I'm not talking about how you doing in relation to our sitting president or former sitting president, 
I'm talking about how you're doing in relation to the glory of God who is true in and of his very nature. That when you hold yourself up against the glory of God, how do your lips measure? All of us stand cursed and condemned under the righteous gaze of the law of God. All of us are liars. And there is only one hope for liars. And that is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That for all of us who have been cursed because of our disobedience to the law, God's word says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that is forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, can come to all people everywhere and that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit that changes us and transforms us and turns us into something altogether new. Friends, all of us stand guilty before God and yet we can all stand acquitted, not because of our own righteousness. None of us have righteous lips, but because of the one who in all of his days, of every minute, of every day, of every week, of every month of his life on earth, never spoke a dishonest or deceitful word. And that even when he was reviled, did not revile in return and with every breath entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that he, the perfect one with sinless lips, might die in the place for every single one of us who do violence with our own lips, not only against our fellow man, but against God himself. What great grace. That you can have forgiveness of sins and right reconciliation to God, go from being his enemy to his friend. That if you would be brought by his grace, to simply repent and believe in the gospel. That if you would put all of your trust and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing with your mouth him as Lord and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then these glorious promises are yours. That you can be a liar yet counted righteous in Christ. That you can receive the promised Holy Spirit and see him begin to utterly transform you on the heart level. And then all of a sudden your heart begins to produce things out of your mouth that it never did before. Where there was once death and deceit, now there is life and fruitfulness. Such kind of fruit that people want to be near you and they want to pick that fruit and they want to eat it and flourish as a result of it. That's what God does in the life of his people. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for Christ. So don't trust the words of the wicked. But rather in verses 5 through 8, trust the words of the Lord. We see here in verse 5 that God finally speaks. God says, quote, Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. God sees and hears, which is why when the wicked seem to be winning, which seem to be the theme of the Psalms up to this point, when it seems the wicked are winning, our primary task is to persevere in prayer. It's not to pass certain legislation. It's not to move to the right state or the right city or the right school district. Those might all be good things. But in the end, it's that we would persevere in prayer. David prays in Psalm 3, arise, O Lord. He prays the same thing in Psalm 7, in Psalm 9, in Psalm 10. It's the same refrain over and over and over. Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. And yet it seems in one psalm after another that God is silent. Well, here in, verse, in, in Psalm 12, God breaks his silence. David prays, Psalm 3, 7, 9, and 10, Arise, O Lord. God answers, Psalm 12, I will now arise. The old Anglican, 19th century Anglican J.C. Ryle said, Never think that time is wasted which is given to God. A Christian finds he is never a loser in the long run by persevering in prayer. 
Brothers and sisters, have you grown weary in praying? Even when it seems like God is far off, even when it seems like God has hidden himself and his face, as David prayed in Psalm 10, do you still yet persist in your prayers, arise, O Lord? In your prayers on behalf of loved ones who have rejected God and the gospel, and yet you long to see them come by God's grace to repent and believe in Christ. Or perhaps for your own children as you see them perhaps going wayward. That they have rejected the gospel. That they walk in disobedience and you see destruction coming into their life like a tsunami. And you know nothing left to do because they won't listen to your counsel. Do you pray? Arise. Arise, O Lord. I can't see what you're doing. I don't know how you're working in all of this. I'm just going to keep praying. Arise, 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 arise. Paul writes in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. A faithful life, believer, a faithful life is characterized by praying and watching. We pray and we watch and we pray and we watch and then we pray some more and we watch. This is what we've seen in the Psalms up to this point as David is seeing circumstances that are insurmountable. He is beyond his own human resources to remedy the circumstances and he is just praying and waiting and watching. And God is finally in Psalm 12 answered that a faithful life is characterized by praying and watching. What area of your life right now have you grown weary in persevering in prayer? In what area in your life do you need to return with the strength that God gives you in His grace to continue persevering in prayer? For loved ones and neighbors, for our own country, for this church, for your spouses, for your own health, whatever it may be. In what area of your life do you need to persevere in prayer? To pray, arise, O Lord. And to do so, as Paul says, with thanksgiving. What does that mean? How is it that a Christian who is praying steadfastly, always watching, and yet, in some sense, thinking like David thinks in Psalm 10, why, O Lord, are you hiding your face? Why are you so far from me? And yet continue to, to pray and continue to watch and to do so with thanksgiving. How, how is it that Christians are able to have a spirit of thanksgiving for prayers not yet answered? The answer is that Christians pray and watch with thanksgiving because they know that God's word is true. Our thanksgiving, as we persevere in praying and watching is fueled and informed and is shaped by the knowledge that God's word is true. And that's what we see in verse 6. The words of the Lord. Notice in verses 1 through 4, we've got the words of the wicked and then God speaks. Verse 5. Contrary to the words of the wicked, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. That what God says is true. That when everyone else in the world is false, God is true. He is not like a man that he should lie. That in the Bible, the number seven that we see here at the end of verse six, that number seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. God's word is pure and it is perfect. It's what theologians through the years have referred to as the infallibility or more recently the inerrancy of God's word. That it is true. It has been inspired by God every word in all of the scriptures. The psalmist gets to this in Psalm 19. Just keep your thumb there and then go over to your Write just a few pages, Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 
We're going to see that God reveals himself in a number of ways. We see, number one, that God reveals himself through what he has created. That's what we see in verses 1 through 6. We're not going to go into that. But in verses 1 through 6, that God reveals his glory in the skies. The heavens declare the glory of God. And yet, Paul writes in Romans 1, that all men everywhere suppress the knowledge of God, even though... What he has created is made abundantly clear. All of his power, all of his glory, and his invisible attributes. There is enough revelation in nature for every man everywhere to go. There is a God, and there is just enough revelation in nature for God to condemn every man for rejecting him. What God's revelation in nature is not sufficient to do is to bring a man to a saving knowledge of the will of God. For that, we need God to speak. And that's why he says in verses 7 and following that God reveals his glory not only through the sky, but God reveals his glory in the scriptures. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Just scan through this for a minute. What is God's word like? What is its attributes? Well, we see in verse 7 that it is perfect and it is sure. Then we see in verse 8 that it is right and it is pure. Same word there, pure, that we find in Psalm 12. In verse 9, we see that it is clean and it is true. In verse 10, it is more desirable than gold and it is sweeter than the sweetest honey. But we don't just see what God's word is. We also see here in verses 7 through 11 what God's word does. That it is living and it is active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. The God's spirit accompanies God's word to do God's work and God's people in God's time for God's glory. And that's exactly what we see here in Psalm 19. That what does it do? It revives the soul and it makes wise the simple. Verse 7. Then in verse 8, it causes the heart to rejoice and it enlightens the eyes. Where there was once darkness, it brings light. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my path and a light to my feet. It brings light where there was darkness. Not only that, but it endures forever. The flower fades and the grass will wither away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And they are righteous altogether. All of them completely put together. They are altogether righteous. Not only that, but in verse 11, they warn us and they reward us. That in them, God has revealed his will for how man is to live. And he reveals the reward for those who would live faithfully. This is God's word. I wonder Do you think about God's word this way? Do you think about God's word in the way that the psalmist does? That even in light of a world that is false, do you think God is true? You realize the reason that we seek to read our Bibles often, and we would encourage you to do it every day if possible, perhaps even multiple times a day, is not because we think that the Bible anywhere has has prescribed, you shall read your Bible every day. You shall follow this reading plan. The reason that we seek to read the Bible every day, the reason that when we come together and we do things as a church, that we don't merely have social gatherings, but but the reason that God's word is at the center of all of it is because of what we believe God's word to be and what we believe God's word to do. And if this is true, then none of us have enough of God's word in our lives. All of us need more of God's word in our lives. To accomplish God's purposes in us for his glory, for the sake of his name among the nations. You and I need more of God's word, not less. And so if you're tempted at any point to think, 
Why is it that we're always opening God's Word? Why does everything have to be about God's Word? It's because of what we believe God's Word to be. It is pure words. Like silver refined. It is perfect and it is pure and it does stuff. It's living and it's active and it works as we are being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer then your life is to be a word-centered life. If we are to be a faithful church, then our church is to be a word-centered church. And yet, not the word in and of itself. Jesus warns the scribes and the Pharisees of putting hope in the Scriptures themselves or merely their knowledge of the Scriptures, thinking that in them, or perhaps even our confession, well, yeah, I believe the Bible's inerrant, or even in those confessions, that you are somehow saved. He says, no, you think that to your destruction. The scriptures testify about me. The purity of the word, the purity of the revelation of God in the scriptures finds its highest point, its fulfillment, its apex in Jesus Christ. That in it we find from Genesis 3 in that initial promise that though sin has come into the world, that God will crush sin and Satan through a promised seed. And that all of it makes its head through various promises further revealed until we get to the New Testament. And we see the incarnation of the one who has been promised. The one who is, according to John, the very word of God, the logos of God. And that we find that in him, the very glory of God is revealed. God has revealed himself in what he has created. He has revealed himself in the scriptures. And the scriptures reveal Jesus Christ to us in whom the very image and glory of God is revealed. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That he is the radiance of his glory. The exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know who God is, of what his will is for your life, if you want to know what it means to be righteous and how it is that you as one who is unrighteous can be saved, then you need to look no further than Jesus. There is no God other than the one that you find in Jesus. He reveals God. And he is the final revelation that it is the perfect and pure revelation that is in Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. And that is why we love the Bible. Because we need Christ. Let us never be a people that goes, yeah, I've had enough of that. I've already read that. I've already studied that. God's word is as deep and as wide as God is deep and God is wide. It endures forever. Let us be a word-centered people. People who are deeply rooted in the conviction of what God's word is, perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And let us do so with the hope and the conviction of what God's word does and reviving the soul and making wise the simple and making the heart rejoice and enlightening the eyes that it endures forever and is altogether righteous, that it warns and rewards and it points us to Jesus. Do you believe that about God's word? When you get behind closed doors and you end up running to various things for comfort or for hope or for truth or for help, where do you go? Do you go to God's word? Let us be a word-centered people. And they'd be like David in verses 7 and 8, and we would trust the words of God. That even when everybody around us is speaking falsely, we would trust God's word. You cannot trust God's word if you do not know God's word. And the psalmist knows God's word. Notice here in, verses, in verse 7, he says two times, you will. You will keep them and you will guard us. He's appealing to God's promises. And this twofold, you will, is corresponding to a twofold, I will, in verse 5. Do you notice that? Verse 5, God says, I will, I will. The response of the faithful to God's word is you will, you will, and an orienting of our lives around that reality. That we are to trust the words of God. That wicked men cannot thwart God's promises. That our own unfaithfulness 
cannot diminish, demean, or derail God's faithfulness. Vileness may be exalted among men, according to verse 8, but God is exalted above men. God's word is true, that we are to trust God's word. This has become an increasingly difficult thing to do in our day, hasn't it? More than 200 years, higher criticism and other schools of thought have sought to undermine the authority of the word, that it has sought to undermine the supernatural basis of the word, really to deny that there's anything supernatural whatsoever. And there is yet many proofs and evidences that we can look at that can give us greater assurance. One of my old professors used to say that apologetics that is making a defense is like it's either a greasy taco or it is like an antacid. That apologetics in the life of one who is a skeptic is like a greasy taco meant to make them uneasy in their assumptions and presuppositions. But for the believer, it's like an antacid just meant to, to cool that uneasiness that comes when others seek to undermine and derail our confidence in God and his word. And so we have a number of proofs that we could look at. We could, we could talk about and, and set our confidence in and find assurance in its authorship. The conviction that God is its author and with God as being its author, that it is God-breathed, as Paul confessed, that it has all the authority that God himself has. It is as true as God is true. It is without error as God is without error. But we might even take it a step further beyond authorship and into authentication. We might look at the historical accuracy and how archaeology continues to unearth the historical accuracy of the Bible. We might look at the, at the embarrassment of riches that we have in manuscripts. Thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, some dating all the way back within a generation of the original autographs. That we can say with full confidence that when we consider all of these manuscripts that we have a clear picture of what was originally written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We can look at manuscripts or we can consider the fact of Christ's resurrection the truth of his fatal torment, the reality of his empty tomb, the truth of his appearances, and the fact that all 11 out of, 12, or 11 out of the 12 apostles were willing to die, not for a lie, but a truth, and that one of them was willing to die in exile for that truth. If it was a ruse or an hallucination, you would think that at least one of them would give it up. All of them died for this truth. Every one of them. Or perhaps the transformation that we've seen all over the world as the result of the gospel or the transformation that you've seen even in your own life as evidence of Christ's resurrection. And you might even assume that because Christ has bodily risen from the dead and there is substantial evidence of this being historically true, not just a spiritualized fiction, that if that is true, then we can trust that the same God who would by the power of the Spirit raise a man from the dead can just as well inspire a perfect book by the same Spirit, that we can trust that His Word is true. And yet, even then, we might consider the Bible's witness of itself. We might consider the harmony of its parts, the way that it all perfectly fits together, its countless fulfilled prophecies, of the way that it all flows and finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And in there, we see the unity of its message, that it's not just a, a, a rule book for life. It's not a thousand pages of Proverbs. It is a united message centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, whereby all of the nations might come and gather around him, having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in Christ, a people for his son. That we might consider how the Bible itself testifies as to its inspiration, to its authority, to its purity, to its eternality. You say, well, yeah, but then you're just making circular arguments. You can't, appeal to, it's, you can't appeal to the Bible's authority to establish the Bible's authority. Well, listen, all appeals to authority are circular. No, science is authoritative. Well, who says? Science says. No, the Bible's authoritative. Well, who says? The Bible does. Well, that's circular. Well, so is the argument for science. All appeals to authority are circular in nature. 
So all of these are proofs that we might look at and go, we can be fairly assured that this is the authoritative inspired word of God and that it is pure and without error. And yet, in none of those things do we find our full assurance. We can give those arguments and other people have arguments against those arguments. And then we'll have counter arguments. There'll be counter arguments to our counter arguments. And that's the way it goes. None of these things ultimately grant our full assurance. No, we agree with the old Baptist confession that says this, that our full assurance and persuasion of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The truth of God's word, to confess what the psalmist confesses here, is not because you've somehow amounted the largest pile of evidence. It is because God in his grace has caused your eyes to see where you once were blind. It's where God has now revealed that which the world is ignorant of and thinks is foolishness. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're just chasing this idea of how can I be confident in God's word in the way that the psalmist is confident in God's word. Go to your right to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Love that sound. Pages turning. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We see that in verses 26 through the end of the chapter, chapter 1, that, it was, that we have not come to the knowledge of Christ because we were so much smarter than everybody else. Rather, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, so that he might bring to nothing the things that are. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. You're not smart enough to figure this out. And the reason is, Paul argues in chapter 2, is because the kind of wisdom that you need in order to see Christ as both the wisdom and the power of God as a wisdom that is not taken by force in your own intellectual might, it is a wisdom that is given by the grace of God. He says in verse 10, These things, that is the hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, that is that Christ himself is the wisdom and power of God. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? In other words, there's all kinds of things about you that I can't know about you unless you make that known to me. How much more with God who is infinite? There are things that you cannot know about God unless God makes himself known. That is what he's saying. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world. That is the spirit that thinks the cross is foolishness, that Christ is folly. But the spirit who is from God, the spirit who reveals and illumines and opens our eyes to the truth of the scripture that frees our wills from being morally bound to opposing God and his word and now frees it to accept God's word for what it is. And he says here that we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, as God's word is preached and God's word is taught, it is meaningful only to those who have the mind of Christ. That is those who are spiritual, those who have been illumined by the Holy Spirit to the truth of God's word. Listen, you can mount all the evidence in the world and the world can mount all the evidence in the world against your evidence. But our full assurance, our full persuasion That God's word is infallible, that it is pure, that it is the very word of God, revealing the very will of God, is because God in his grace has brought us to see. It's the only reason. So the affirmation or denial of the Bible as God's pure and perfect word is not ultimately an intellectual issue. 
I know some of you have friends, perhaps even some of you here, you struggle with the idea of the Bible. Or you've had friends or family members that struggle with the idea of the Bible. And they have all these intellectual issues. But listen, brothers and sisters, the affirmation and denial of the Bible is God's authoritative, pure and perfect word is not ultimately an intellectual issue. It is a spiritual and it is a moral issue. It is spiritual because it requires, it requires the Spirit's illumination, as we just saw in 1 Corinthians 2. And it is moral in that to see God's word for what it is, his will revealed in his word and in his son, is to require transformation. And those who are morally opposed to God don't want to change. This week we had our first meeting of our church interns. They've been doing some reading over the summer, and one of our interns made an astute observation. He said that, you know, growing up, his family and those close to him, that they very rarely ever talked about doctrine, that is, what the Bible teaches about God and all that in relation to God. And he said nobody really ever talked about it because doctrine is divisive and it's not really useful. But then he made this observation that really at the end of the day, the reason that the Bible was avoided is because people didn't want to change. You can't come to God's word, acknowledge God's word is supremely authoritative over you and all things, that it's the very word of the living God who has created you, upon whom you are utterly dependent and to whom you are finally accountable. And you cannot walk away without being changed. People who morally do not want to change and love their sin more than they love the idea of a savior, will always deny the Bible as the authoritative supreme word of God. It's not just an intellectual issue. It is a spiritual issue and it is a moral issue. And yet our hope, the reason that any of us are here to affirm what we affirm about God's word and our hope for our friends and our family members is that God would do in them what God has done in us. And that is that the very same God who said, let light shine out of darkness would cause, would shine into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. I don't care how, how high your pile of evidence is. Stack it up. It's helpful God can use it. But at the end of the day, only God can make dead men come alive. Only God can raise the spiritual dead to spiritual life. Only God can take a heart that is darkened to the reality of God, to the truth of his word, refusing to submit to it. And only God in his abundant grace can cause the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as testified by the scriptures, to shine in their hearts in such a way that they would come to know God, to love God, and to trust his word. Brothers and sisters, let us trust God's word. You may not be the intellectual powerhouse that some of your peers or friends or family are. I'm not. But you don't have to be. You say, why do I believe that God's word is the supreme, authoritative, inspired word of God? Why do I think this is what the Bible is? Because God in his word has revealed himself to me by his spirit. That is where your full assurance and persuasion comes from. That's enough. Just rest. Let's pray.